0: You could think of grief as a sacred passage. You are torn from the life you knew before. You are not who you were, and you are not who you will become. Like everything else, you are changing. You are, in a very real way, between identities. This experience, profoundly different for each of us, is confusing, agonizing, and potentially life transforming. That passage is from Opening to Grief by Claire Willis, my guest today on The Intentional Clinician. I'm Paul Krauss, licensed professional counselor and host of The Intentional Clinician podcast. Whether you are a longtime listener or just tuning in for the first time, I thank you for listening to The Intentional Clinician podcast. Please subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen to, and give us a rating over on iTunes. I'd surely appreciate it. All right, a little bit about our guest today, Claire Willis. Claire Willis is a clinical social worker who has worked in the fields of oncology and bereavement for more than 20 years. A co-founder of the Boston nonprofit Facing Cancer Together, Willis has led bereavement, end-of-life, support, and therapeutic writing groups. She has co taught spiritual resources for healing the mind, body, and soul at Andover Newton Theological School. She maintains a private practice in Brookline, Massachusetts. As a lay Buddhist chaplain, ordered by Joan Halifax at Upnya Zen Center in Santa Fe, she focuses on contemplative practices for end of life care. Over the past five years, she has been a student of Koshin Paley Ellison, a founding teacher at the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. Besides Opening to Grief, her book, Willis is the author of Lasting Words, A Guide to Finding Meaning Toward the Close of Life. You can find out more about her on openingtogrief.com. All right, now for the interview. Welcome to the show, Claire Willis. I appreciate you coming on the Intentional Clinician Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me
0: so i've been enjoying your book here uh the new book actually i got to read it i guess before everyone else uh it's not out yet it's coming out here very shortly opening to grief finding your way from loss to peace uh, by yourself and uh it looks like marnie samuelson Um, and i've really been enjoying it i found it uh practical uh very sensitive very intuitive um there was really good stuff about education and then what you could do, there was reflections, there was activities. Um, I didn't actually do a lot of the activities just because I was reading it for the interview. But I, I loved that there was all these like interactive pieces to the book. Um, and just so many, so many things I did not know about grief. Because even as a licensed professional counselor, I read articles on grief. I work with people on trauma. Um, and there's a lot of grief when you've had a trauma go on in your life. But um, I learned a lot. So I would love our listeners to learn a little bit about you and also about, uh, you know, what inspired you to write this book. And then kind of we'll we'll talk about grief. I've got a lot of questions. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, What inspired me to write this book is the work I do with pe- most of my work has been with people with cancer, and I love bereavement work, and I love working with people who are dying. I, I know that probably sounds bizarre, but I feel like those, the conversations and the relationship you have with someone who's dying is, has no nonsense in it. It's very pure. And one of the questions that just keeps coming up with people I work with is things like, am I grieving right? Um, or I lost it. I feel like I, I was doing okay, and then I fell back today because I broke down when I saw a can of tuna fish in the supermarket, and I thought I was beyond that. And so I wanted to write a book that would feel like a companion to people, a book that would make people feel like whatever they were feeling was normal and acceptable, and give them resources for respecting and honoring their grief because grief is nothing more. Well, I shouldn't say nothing more. It is a primary form of loving. And so not to allow ourselves to grieve is to cut off the loving we feel for what we've lost. So that's what, that's what really drove the book, finding myself saying the same things over and over to people and just wanting to get the shame and the privacy of the pain lifted off of people.
0: That's that's wonderful. I'm glad. And so it sounds like this is um, one of my favorite genre of psychology and and philosophy books are when people basically are coerced into writing a book by all of their clients and their friends that are saying, would you know, would you just write this stuff down? Because and then you find yourself repeating the same thing day after day. So that's when you can tell there's there's the pearls of wisdom. And some of my favorite uh, psychology books have been actually written the same way. So I think this is probably why i resonated so much with the book as a practitioner i thought my goodness this is just so accessible to your average person and i learned a great deal because it was like a reduction uh, like a sauce you know like a reduction sauce that you make you have a, you have a lot of it and then you boil it off and then it makes this really good flavor and i think you know when you're reading all the textbooks it seems like this whole like intellectual exercise when in fact uh grieving is not really there's parts that are intellectual and cognitive but it, it really has a lot of uh participation and experiential things that i think people are afraid of they're ashamed of so um, one of the things we talked about before we started was normalizing grief and so um, How do we normalize it? What is it? How do we how do we do that?
1: Well, um first of all, I want to just say something about the grief to the point you were just making is that um a lot of the endorsers of the book referred to the book as a companion for grief. And I love that because what we wanted was for people to read the book and say to themselves, oh, I'm doing fine. I'm not alone. Other people have walked this path. And my grief is appropriate, however it's showing itself. So I, I just want to say that. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot a question you asked me because I was that.
0: That's all good. I was just wondering about how I, I'm glad I, I do see this as a companion to grief because it does seem like, okay, I'm grieving. So this is the book I need to buy. This is the book I need to read or borrow or whatever. Um, normalizing grief. Like I kind of need to know a little bit, I think for y- your listeners, what is grief? Cause I feel like there's so many definitions of it and maybe there, that needs to be so many definitions of it. But at the same time, how do we, how do we normalize that? It's a thing that we go through in a culture where it seems like we avoid death and we avoid conversations of death and we avoid suffering at all costs and we're always looking for that shiny new object or shiny new vacation or new house or whatever uh, You know watch hg hg for a few hours and it's like, oh my gosh I'm, so excited about all this stuff But what about the bad the difficult parts of life that we all have to go through? There's no exception. So how do we how do we normalize it? this is a process?
1: We we live in a grief denying culture. Although I have to say that COVID has brought grief into the fore, and I think now you're seeing um, articles in the Atlantic. You're seeing articles in the New York Times. We're seeing the word is coming into our culture and getting more integrated. And I'm really grateful for that. Um, How do we normalize grief? Uh, one of the ways I want to normalize it is by just um, talking a little bit about the various ways it expresses itself, because most people think of grief as sorrow, sadness, and that kind of thing. But grief is loneliness, it's despair, it's anxiety. Anxiety and fear are a big form of grief. Um, it's anger, it's resentment, It's it has many expressions. And on the other side of the coin, it has positive expressions, too. Gratitude as an expression can be an expression of grief, or relief can be an expression of grief. So it, it's. I think of it as a word that multitasks, that has a lot of feelings underneath it that people don't often recognize as grief. It's a normal reaction to the loss of something or someone we've loved. I mean, I think that's the simple way. It expresses itself cognitively. It expresses itself emotionally, spiritually, and physically. So cognitively, people get forgetful. They can't concentrate. People often clients say, I can't, I can't read a book. That's a, that's a big loss that often comes for people with grief. Emotionally, we get more labile. We get more sensitive. We can be skinless or we can be numb. We our emotional temperament changes a little bit. Physically, people's appetite changes. Either people overeat, they undereat. Often, people report drinking a little earlier in the day, drinking too much. You know, we have ways of trying to mediate the pain. And I think in the face of a traumatic loss, um, often there's a loss. Uh, there's a loss of the assumptive world. The world isn't supposed to work that way, and we can lose our faith. And that can be a real challenge when your faith has been something that has sustained you. So it has a lot of expressions. It affects a lot of parts of our life as well.
0: Yes, it's basically all-encompassing. And I do believe, you know, as a A Place I run the trauma-informed counseling center here in Grand Rapids We we notice that anytime a trauma happens and I would say like a loss is a trauma There is this natural tendency to avoid the pain associated with the loss and so What I'm hearing, you know, we do all these things. We try to stay busy Uh, Maybe we uh, you know, try to I don't know find someone else to fill the void Um, we get lost in dissociation like just watching television all the time or the internet and and uh and and here's the hard part about grief is is that if you've lost someone or something or some uh, or or a pet there is no avoiding it you can't actually avoid it so you can only stave off those thoughts for so long and the physical and the spiritual and all these things you're talking about there there's only one way really forward Uh, Through in its through grief is from what kind of what I was reading What what I understand from my perspective. I I don't know if i'm saying that right, but just like It's unavoidable. It's all-encompassing. It's transform It's transforming. It's it's confusing all of these things I don't know. What are your thoughts about that?
1: Well part of what you say, I don't completely agree with so and um I think people can avoid grief Okay, they're gonna harden and they are gonna pay for it And the grief is going to come out sideways.
0: Oh, okay. Yes. Yes. Um,
1: So, I mean, I know people, I mean, I could get political, but I'm not going to, but I'm thinking about somebody who's prominent, who has no compassion, who has no sympathy for others. And sometimes I say to myself, what happened to him as a child? Something horrible must have happened because I think of that kind of presentation, that kind of hardness and bullying and aggressive as being grief that can't find its way into expression. And what happens is that I think sometimes to get to that tender part is too vulnerable and frightening for people. And so anger is often a presentation of grief because it gives you a false sense of agency. It gives you a false sense of strength. But what happens is it leaves you out of connection with people because the broken heart the tender part of ourselves is what really leads to connection with one another
0: i yes does that, that was sense? profound yes that is very profound i totally agree with that completely i was thinking about for your average listener there's no there's no way to avoid it but you're right you can you can stuff it down you can put it out in the in the dark closet and then that does manifest as something else
1: in unconscious ways ways that we often have control over
0: Right. And so that that makes complete sense. I read a lot of Carl Jung and he says, you know, the things that you don't, uh, you know, deal with inside you manifest as, you know, something on the outside and you call it fate when actually it's just something coming up from inside. So it makes sense on uh, a complete sense. I just love the way you put that. And, uh, but know, So it is a natural process that the body and the mind and the the soul have to go through, and if they don't, then there's massive repercussions is what I'm hearing. I remember my friend uh, is Jewish, and they, uh, in the traditional Jewish culture, at least the recent one, um, uh, from whatever sect he was in, uh, if somebody dies, you put them in the house and embalm them uh, for seven days, and the person who... Uh, Lost the person or the whole family has to sit in there for seven days and grieve and look at the body and cry and yell and scream at God and And uh, have all these meals and they're not allowed to go anywhere and and all the uh, the community comes over And and talks to them and and holds ceremonies and rituals and spiritual things and goodbyes before you're allowed to bury the body or or uh, cremate the body Uh, And I and I remember going that is the weirdest thing because i'm a european. I I don't i'm not jewish I don't I don't have those, you know, uh cultural You know uh, Background, so I said that is a weird say. Why do they do that? He said because in america We all avoid grief and so our sect decided, you know in our tradition that this is what we needed to do And when you go through that it sounds terrible, but it's actually Gets you so far into the grieving process that you can start healing but if you don't do that You know certain people like you said You know will avoid it and certain people won't but it's it's like almost like this They had to do it. It was like a cultural right. Any thoughts about that?
1: Well, it's it's a way of making the death real. Yes Now I haven't heard of that. Uh, That's okay. What you're describing to me is news to me um I've never heard of the body being put in the house for seven days because I thought the Jewish tradition was to bury the body within 48 hours, 24, 48 hours. So uh, this is news to me, but certainly sitting Shiva with the family for seven days is a common practice.
0: Okay. That was, that was a misnomer. Maybe they buried the body, but you had to like look at pictures or be in the house and deal You're with it. You're in the and house and the...
1: people visit and you wear yes. black and you don't leave the house.
0: That's it. Okay.
1: Yes. Yes. I thought maybe you were talking about some Orthodox sect that I had never it, heard of.
0: It was actually an Orthodox person who told me it, but I don't know if that—if it's the body or it's the shiva—but yes, that's what it is. Okay.
1: Yeah, sitting shiva is a a pretty beautiful tradition uh, because it, the the family is surrounded by people all the time, and one of the things that happens when people are grieving is that they'll find that people initially come in and are of support, and too soon they disappear into back into their own life, and the person who's grieving is left alone and left to have to reach out on their own. I hear this a lot. People came forward, I hear, who I didn't expect, and people disappeared I didn't expect. So there's a changing landscape of friendships, which actually brings me to another point I'd like to just mention here. What happens often is, let's say you lose your brother, okay, and then In losing your brother, you've lost your best friend. You might have lost an uncle to your children. You might have lost someone who has been offering you financial support. That there are losses that build on losses, and they're commonly known as secondary losses, and they're especially prevalent with someone who's lost a spouse because you may lose a co-grandparent, a co-parent, a breadwinner. You may lose your home. You've lost some economic security invariably. You may have lost your community. One of the women in one of my bereavement groups is, was the wife of a doctor, and she was very close with all the physicians. And when her husband died, all those people from the hospital disappeared. So the secondary losses are not secondary in impact, but they're secondary to the primary. And that's a really important thing, I think, to identify because often people are suffering in larger measure around things beside the loss of their loved one. That there, the other losses can be very significant.
0: So it's like I think you called them secondary losses. So so not only did you lose someone in your life and you're grieving from that, but all of a sudden now all of these different subtle ways your life is changing. And it's yes. a constant reminder, not only of the loss, but it also can possibly throw you into a bit of disorientation from your normal routine and who you hang out with and what you know where you live and yes. like the economic concerns regarding that. And so, this can be a, not only a painful process of the actual loss, but a painful process of an incomplete life adjustment.
1: That oh yes, absolutely, absolutely a complete life adjustment.
0: And in the psychology world, I think then we would even go further that, you know, if you have trouble adjusting to a life phase, that could even lead to a depression or anxiety or some other, you know, malady that could manifest and even keep you in this dark place longer um, if it's not. a
1: loss of identity. I'm no longer a wife. I'm no longer a caregiver. I'm no longer a sister. I'm no longer a mother. There could be a loss of identity and roles, too. I mean, that's another secondary loss.
0: Oh my goodness. So that is, yeah, tremendous, tremendous loss with grief. Uh, um, I I have a question about the shame. Uh, Why why are people, what is the shame about? You said you wanted to lift the shame around surrounding grief. I'm just curious about that.
1: So, um, okay, I'll just describe a situation, a couple of situations that I've encountered recently. One of them was a, with a family member with whom I'm very close. And she put her dog of 14 years down and she grieved mightily. And she said to me, Claire, you're the only person I would tell this to, but I'm sleeping with what was his favorite toy. Now that is not an unusual thing, but most people wouldn't tell you that. And I tried to normalize it with her. I tried to lift the shame of it. In my bereavement group, um, people talk about, sleeping in their husband's pajamas. They love the smell, the scent, but they also say the only place I would say this is in here. So there's a privacy of pain that's gotten generated, I think, around grief. And I think one of the, this is going to sound strange, one of the side effects of COVID, and there haven't been many, that's been positive is that it's brought word grief into the mainstream. It's brought it to the New York Times. It's brought it to the Atlantic. It's brought it to major papers. You read about it now and it's normalized it a lot and people are more honest about it and what they're doing. So uh, one of the things I'll say in my bereavement group is I would never say, is anybody talking to the person they lost? I would say, how many of you are speaking with your loved one? So the question, the way I say it embeds Of course you are, as opposed to are you? And then there's, well, is anybody else raising their hand, you know, kind of thing. So I I try to normalize the things that I hear. One woman bought a rabbit because she couldn't stand not having something warm around her. She needed the tactile touch of an animal after her husband died. These are things that people are often reluctant to speak about outside of the group which i think is unfortunate it's one of the things i love about group work because group work normalizes the pain people say oh you're doing that oh you are too oh i guess it's not crazy
0: ah yes the the shame of feeling like something's wrong with you or that you're crazy or that you're doing odd things and and to be you know you know, it's a huge change and a lot of the behaviors you might be engaging in to self-soothe are different than before.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: And so it obviously is a disruption to the way that you even think about like your relationship with yourself, relationship with others. I can definitely see that. Um, I, I know you've mentioned this a little bit, but grief is becoming more uh, like in a cultural conversation because not only are we grieving the loss of 200,000 plus people in the US i don't know what the worldwide count is right now but um that suddenly you know with this uh, novel virus have uh died uh you know we uh, there's people grieving the loss of jobs of uh routines of um things they used connection. to do uh yeah connection to the community i actually you know just as uh as a uh, side you know it's a real thing it, it's touched almost everyone i've talked to i i had a i have had multiple friends hospitalized with it um uh, uh, most really? of them recovered oh absolutely yes i have friends in new york i have friends in uh, phoenix uh who are in the hospital um luckily they are survived because they're my age but i actually had a uh A representative, state representative in Michigan named Isaac Robinson, who I was quite close to in terms of being a colleague because we had worked together on a bill for mental health in 2019. And he suddenly passed away right around uh, March 18th or 19th, which was a huge shock to me. I feel like I'm still in shock from that one, which is partly the denial stage of grief because I couldn't believe that, you know, he was hosting events and going around and promoting mental health and this great state uh, representative. And then it suddenly he was just gone and it was just like because at first you know you think it's something in the news and then when you have it affect you personally i think people's the people that have had this affect them personally in more ways than just money or finance or, or disruption to you know entertainment i think that they start to understand each other and there's a larger conversation going on with with people i've talked to that um, like I had a friend of mine; her father passed away. He had some comorbid conditions. Obviously, COVID pushed him over the edge quite quickly. Um, you know, so there's a, there's a collective conversation going on, not only with the death of people, which is very real, but then the loss of our our routines and our our, our communities and our, our our connections. So, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing from from this?
1: Well. Um, but... What I'm I'm seeing that a couple of things. One is that um, it's much harder to grieve because people don't have the normal support. They can't, they're having online uh, funeral services, zoom services. There's no touch. There's no holding, physical holding of one another. So I think the grief is exacerbated. And I think also the grief has been truncated. Both are true so that people, um, people I know who lost partners in early March were consumed by what was involved in dealing with COVID right away too. So it, it, it both amplifies and has d- diminished in some ways the grief um, because it's redirected our attention. And what one of the things that I hear is, I just wish my partner was here to go through this with me. But it has required so much of us Uh, in terms of changing our life. I mean, initially, I don't know about you, but I was washing the groceries and I had them on one side, you know, it it would take me an hour to put away the groceries. Now, when you're grieving, you can't, you know, that's a lot. That's a big package right there. So I think it cuts both ways. Um, The comfort measures just aren't available and the distractions aren't available. You know, you can't say, come on, let's go out to dinner and get a nice dinner together. Or let's go to a movie and see if we can find something that will be a little... There's there's nowhere to go with it. We're home with it in a, a different way. Although the summer has provided some, I think, relief for us. But I think as we head into colder, darker times, it's going to be more difficult for people who are grieving, for sure.
0: Yes, absolutely. Because... The, the grief is already a tremendous shock. And then I think with the, with the quarantine and everything that was happening with COVID, I think it was a, uh, it was like a constant learning curve of what, what what we were you know supposed to do and what the mandates were and what, what you had to do to maintain safety. So I can't imagine the people that were really losing somebody close to them and then having to do on top of grieving, you're right. Like a truncates it. Like you can you have to think about your survival um, survival mind uh, coming into, into play here. So, and and now you know collectively i think it's sobered some people and and again you can look in the news and the twitterverse and all that and you can see other people that it's actually uh, this this uh sad experience we're all going through has made them angry and frustrated and um disbelieving almost to the point of making up fanciful stories about this pandemic and um,
1: Violation of their rights. and
0: Yes. Yeah. And making it some sort of uh, some sort of uh, javelin to throw. So I think there's a lot of ways that, like you said, grief can be expressed. And as a as a male, socialized as a male and being a male, I see a lot of men in therapy and a lot of men um, don't know why they're angry about things with their with their personal lives and so not only maybe a loss of you know maybe they had a loss of parent right and and they and they're angry from that but then there's other things when um, uh they, they they a part of their life changes right mm-hmm. there can be a grief that's a, a not the same grief as a loss of a person but there's a grief of a loss of something and then they're angry for such a long time they don't know what it is it's like a simmering pot right they're just
1: The anger gives people a sense of agency and strength. And while it's a false sense of agency and a false sense of strength, it's easier to feel than the tenderness and the helplessness of losing someone. And I think it's funny. I was just talking about this with somebody. I think that helplessness is not a quality that we have socialized our men to be able to hold that somehow they're responsible for fixing things. And I, I don't mean this as a, a genetic quality, but I think it's our culture has socialized. Now, of course, there's exceptions to this, but my, my practice, I mean, is mostly with women and my groups are mostly women. There's some exceptions, but mostly they're women that come for support. And I think there's a suck it up, move on get with it uh, expectation that often unfortunately men carry that it's not okay it's not okay to cry it's not okay and even in my bereavement groups i can't tell you how often i hear oh i'm sorry i'm crying oh i'm so sorry i'm, so, I'm sorry for my t-. it's like well, you're in a bereavement group if you can't cry here where can you cry and i think this comes off the culture you know i really do and I think the one thing, if if this COVID's done anything, it's allowed us to be, to use this word more frequently and to say we're grieving. It's given us permission.
0: Well, that's a key point, permission. And so I think that, uh, that culturally, a lot of us got messages that you weren't supposed to cry in public or cry at all right. uh, and or... Um, Oh, you're being too emotional. You're disrupting the party. Uh, We're supposed to have a good time. Um, Why why are you sad? We're out on Friday night. Uh, You can't be sad now. This is our party time. So it's this sort of Uh, denial of our humanity in a little in micro ways. No,
1: the denial of our humanity. That's absolutely true, and it's it's also the denial of an of a strong source of connection with other people. People connect over shared suffering.
0: I love that. That is so true. And 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 I think that I'm hoping our culture can grow up a little bit in collectively, because we I, I believe in the United States we have so many positive qualities and and so many great things to offer the world. And I think the one thing that I hear from my friends overseas is I wish you guys would remember that you're people too, and not all movie stars. It's sort of this sort of like, remember you're going to suffer too, and and if you guys suffer well, like what a good example you could be, since most of the mainstream movies and music are coming out of here. Uh, you know, not all of it, but a lot of the great deal of it that could could tell these stories well. And and then if our if our news and our in li- our leaders were you know, the fish rots from the head. They always say, so if our leaders were kind of taking a little bit of this, Hey, we're people that what a great example that could be for the children, you know, to learn that it's okay to be vulnerable and, and especially, and it's difficult because, you know, we're so much involved in this conversation, but I, I, I'm hoping that maybe we'll, we'll learn something from this pandemic because here's the fun thing I say to people (laughs) that are all upset about the pandemic. I say, did you know that this pandemic also hit every other country in the world and every other continent except Antarctica and that they all dealt with this too. <laughs> and we're the ones making the biggest fuss about how mad we are about it and, and how, how it's affecting our, our politics and it's affecting our economy. It affected everyone's economy and politics and everything. And you wouldn't know it to hear the news. You wouldn't know it. Right. It would only happened here. So, um, I just had to throw that in, even though this is about grief, because I think that's a way that grief manifests is is that it can manifest in that anger. Uh, we've been focusing on anger, but there's also bargaining uh, that, you know, these the quote unquote stages that I think should be called phases. But they're not really in order uh, The that that uh, the famous person from the 1960s,
1: Elizabeth, Elizabeth. For us.
0: yes yeah. i was right but i didn't want to say it wrong for the for the audience but she came up with these things she was observing um and those are th- some of the manifestations we see but there's even more manifestations of grief
1: that well, we see I, now. I wanted, i'm glad you brought that up because first of all her work is wonderful um unfortunately it's been applied to people who are grieving and it was never intended to be a linear description of the grief process. She actually wrote those stages um, for people who were dying to describe the dying process. And it's been extrapolated to grief. Now, since then, um, and that's one of the things that happens in the bereavement group. People will say, Am I grieving right? Am I in the right stage? I didn't. I skipped this stage, and the, her work has really saturated the culture. And I spend a lot of time saying, you may go through some of those things, and you may not. But there's certainly no linear progression. We can't overlay a map or a model on anybody's grief process because everybody grieves differently. There's as many different faiths to grieve as there are people who are grieving. And there's a wonderful article, there was a wonderful opinion piece written in the Boston Globe a few years back by a, a writer named Joan Wickersham and she talks about going to a party and she meets a man who lost his wife a year ago who has since remarried and actually remarried a friend of his wife's, former wife. And then she talks about meeting a woman whose husband died four years ago and every time she goes and meets a person at the party, she talks about, she brings her husband into the conversation. And she closes this article by saying, both of these are expressions of grief. And I love that because the person that marries immediately and the person that stays single, it's all grief. It's all grief. It just has different faces. And I think if we can broaden how we look at it, we can be more accepting of how people grieve.
0: Oh that's that's important accepting how people grieve and not yeah, there's putting, no map. It, yeah there's not no. putting expectations on it
1: yes because that's what shuts people down
0: i remember hearing as a child i didn't know i was going to say this but i remember hearing um my friend's my really good friend's mother died when we were in high school tragically of cancer and and within about I think he met his new wife within a year and then he married her within two years. And he was obviously grief stricken. The, 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 the father. Yeah. I mean, this was just love of his life, his high school sweetheart, all this stuff had several children with her. And I remember talking to my friend after he got remarried and saying, Oh, well, how's that going? And you know, Oh, she's fine. And you know, you know, we miss our mom, but you know, she's a nice lady and, and this and that. And I said, Oh yeah, well, and I, something came up and he said, yeah, his, uh, her grandparents or her parents, the the wife who had was deceased, her parents are mad at my father and won't talk to him. And I said, why? Yeah. And they, yeah. And he said, they said he, they believe he met her and married her too soon. And he's disrespected our mother. And I said, what? And I, I, I was in college. That's I, I didn't unusual. understand. And I said, well, well, why? Well, it, well, What is he supposed to do, I said? And he goes, I know. He goes, I I don't think he disrespected our mother. He's got her pictures up everywhere. It's not like she's gone, you know, well, not everywhere, but, you know, in his room or whatever. Uh, It's obviously complicated. They're adult. They're way older than us. I was young. And I thought, that's really, I I, I said, I think I said something like, I really wish your grandparents would just talk to him about it and see what he's got to say about it. I, I was not a therapist at this point. And he goes, I know. Tell me about it. And so, I was thinking, you know, this is like it, it's like their grief about their daughter was was coming into play. Going, uh, you know, how dare you marry a new woman so soon? That's disrespectful. And then he's going, I'm lonely. I'm sad. My wife had cancer for two years. She was, you know, at that he's point
1: alone, probably in some he ways was alone
0: years. during that two years for some of it, right? And then two years later, he marries this woman. And so, uh, you know that that does there are these cultural expectations that could be solved with a simple conversation
1: well you know i I, one of the places i've seen this really um have uh, uh, in in a large amount of cases is with young i had a i I used to lead groups for young adults who'd lost parents to cancer and when mostly it was the fathers paired up too soon it really was hard for the kids Mm. because i think they see it as replacing so i'm gonna just i just want to describe something and i don't mean to completely analogize these because i'm going to be talking about an animal but i think there's something here that's similar so i lost a, a a beloved pet on march 1st that i adored it was 15 and i had no idea i was coming into the pandemic none. And it was, it was tough. And then I got a new pup about six weeks ago. And when the puppy arrived, I remember, I didn't even know I was thinking this. Right. And I thought, Oh, it didn't fill the void. I thought, and I love this little puppy, but the, the, you know, Joan Didion's book, the year of magical thinking.
0: You referenced that in your book. Yes.
1: I, I had some magical thinking going on that I didn't even know was happening, that I thought this new dog would fill the void of the old. Hasn't done that, but she's brought incredible joy and love into my life. And it reminds me, it's the same thing. I think there's some similar dynamics here with people, that it doesn't fill the void, but it brings new joy in. And I think people think of it as replacing. And it's not replacing, it's adding to. I have um, a couple that fell in love in my bereavement group. Six, Their, their spouses had died around the same time, and six months later in the bereavement group, they were starry-eyed with each other. And now they're living together. You know, who's to say? You know, I think the important thing is that if you meet somebody that you are able to bring along the person you lost fully. And that person stays in the conversation. That person is living in the relationship, whether you like it or not. And not not having to extrude that person, but bring them along and say, oh, today I'm really missing my former wife. Be able to talk about that for each of them is so important. So it, it's not so much... The repairing, but how does the re I don't mean repair, I mean repairing up.
0: Yes, oh I get you um,
1: happen. How does that happen? And what's the quality of that relationship in light of those losses? That they not the conversation not be forbidden.
0: Yes, and, and it shouldn't be seen as a threat that you had a former loss. There it's unrelated. It's we're adding, it's both and we must bring both into the conversation.
1: There's an article in The Globe called I'm a Bigamist, and it's about a man who lost his wife, the woman lost her husband, and they remarry. And they describe themselves as bigamists who can love more than one person at the same time. And it just takes the punch out of the word bigamist and reframes it in a really lovely way. I mean, hopefully we can love more than one person at a time.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think it's good that we these conversations are coming up and that it's becoming more open. I I did actually hear, I don't know if this is a I heard a similar story actually when I was living in Arizona full-time. I, I heard about um this group of of people that were widows and widowers that would meet um at like some I don't know what it was, a community center or a church or something and just have lunch. Um you know, (laughs) once a week to talk about it. And I heard about this. What's that? Yeah. And then I I met one of the people from there randomly. Uh, and, and I met a couple uh, and they were, they were remarried and they had both lost their spouses to, uh, you know, earlier. And they were just like, you know, we both, and I I remember them talking openly about it because they were telling me about the group. Right. And, and I remember them saying almost the same thing. Like, Yeah, we talk about it. We talk about missing so and so, but we're in love too. It's a whole different thing. We just happen to be older. We're in our seventies, and we're we love each other, and we don't want to ever be apart. But we also have days where we're upset about what happened. You know, Uh, so I think that just that's embracing a holistic part of our humanity is that um, you know part of being being a human is suffering, but also Part of what's important, I think that's happening in our culture is this this especially with the younger uh well everyone, hopefully, but the young adults really are getting into this authenticity movement with brene Brown and talking about what's what's actually happening, what right. do I actually feel? I don't want to talk based on your cultural expectations of what I think I should say or what it what the cultural norms are you know you see you know peop and, and people are dressing differently and having green and pink and purple and Uh, no hair and gray oh gray hair is getting in by the way gray hair is in now people are dying at gray uh i'm serious like in their 20s and it's just going you know i i don't yeah i it's it's part of an expression right i want to express myself this way that's right that's right uh, i think that's important
1: partly because people couldn't get to the
0: hairdresser that's also true (laughs) that's also true um So I think grief, What I'm here, and I want to make sure we talk about the resources that you've you've put into this book and some of these practices, uh, you know, as well, because I want people to know, you know, we're talking about this, but there are so many paths to helping heal the hurt, which what I understand is that it's not like we're ever trying to get over grief. Grief is going to be with us, and it will last as long as it lasts. Sometimes it's waves. Sometimes it's a road. And, and, and it comes and goes is from what I, well, that was some of the notes I wrote from your book. Um, but there's so many different paths for so many different people that not only involve other people in conversations, but also involve um, personal things such as art and writing. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of these resources?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, well, let me just say the first resource that we talk about, which I think is very important, is the concept of kindness. And I think in a culture that shames grief and hasn't really integrated the full expression of it, being kind towards yourself as a practice is really important and being compassionate towards whatever arises. So I I just want to say that. And there's a little practice in the kindness um, chapter called meta meditation or loving kindness, or some people call it tender friend. And I, I love those words And there are little ways that you create aspirations for yourself. May I be free of fear. May I have strength from my journey. May I allow my grief to, um, may I allow myself to feel my grief. May I not judge my grief, whatever. Um, So kindness is really, I think, an important start because if we're kind, we're going to allow ourselves to feel what we feel and we will find people who can help us hold that. Um, Another chapter that I think is really important is the one on restoring in nature, that the natural world, one of the things that I noticed during the pandemic in March, April, was that we made an attempt every week, I live in the city, to leave the city and go to a beautiful place. It was very sustaining. And when we were writing the book, one of the things that we noticed is that there's a lot of research about this. Um, there's a couple of researchers named Stephen and Rachel Kaplan who talk about restorative environments and beautiful environments. And one of the things that happens in the natural world, which is so unlike most of our daily daily work is we're looking at a computer we're focused our eyes don't get to rest and when we go into nature nothing is asked of us it's a simply absorbing and receiving time and it boosts our immune system it helps with anxiety it helps with depression there's a lot of research about it in japan there's a a i don't think i put this in the book either there's a practice called um and it's a very popular pastime called forest bathing where people go into the forest and just be among the trees and it's been shown to have a lot of health benefits and benefits in d- diminishing our stress so that's that's another aspect so restoring in nature and also the other thing about the natural world is that we see the life death regeneration cycle in the natural world and i think sometimes it can give us faith that we will get through this and that we can see our process mirrored. We can see the hurricanes. We can see the still days. And while we may not think of it that way, there's a way that the the temporary nature of everything is, is experienced. Um, I'm thinking another, another one of the chapters is um, writing, Uh, as a form of refuge. And one of the things about writing that's really helpful is it helps us take a chaotic experience and put structure and meaning on it. Um, Some of my clients write unsent letters to their loved ones. Um, One of the things I hear a lot is, I never want to forget blah, blah, blah. And I've suggested that people take this phrase, I remember, and fill it in repeat, I remember, and fill it in. There's a whole book called I Remember, which is nothing but one sentence after another of the author's remembrances. And you will remember. And it's also a time to take out of your life to sit down and remember the person you loved. Um, Another thing we do for writing is we suggest that people uh, create a gratitude journal. And what happens is that most of us are our, our minds are hard, actually, not most of us, all of us, our minds are hardwired towards the negative. We are habituated towards negative. And it's not a bad thing, but it's something that's evolved with time because at some point in ancient times, it's what allowed us to survive. We don't. We don't any longer need to be negatively habituated, but we are anyway. So how do we counter that? So we counter that by lingering with what's good. 10 to 30 seconds and as we strengthen our capacity to be with what's good it helps builds our resilience to be with with our grief so keeping a gratitude journal can be a very helpful thing and what happens if you write three gratitudes down at the end of the day for instance you start to look for what is right Oh, someone dropped off some flowers. Oh, I got a sweet phone call from. So it's important. We're, we're strengthening ourselves by pitching our, our attention equally to what's right, but not at the expense of our pain and suffering, but alongside of it. So those are, those are three of the chapters, writing, nature, and, and kindness, which I think are pretty important and pretty universal.
0: Yes. And I'm, I'm really glad you put those in there. And, and I think those are practical things that people can participate in. I think the hard part is, um, you know, science and research backs up the therapy process. It backs up the group therapy process, I mean, to one of the highest efficacy rates of, in all of medicine. Um, so when we're when we're doing this stuff, we know that it can rewire your your mind to be able to help yourself through this Both on a biological level and a psychological level, but also personal and uh, existential So the the the, the trouble is the the trouble is and that's why I like this book is participation is that we've got to participate Um, there's the community aspects the friend aspects you talk about in here um there's the q&a actually you have a whole section of the book That's basically just questions and answers for the people have asked you and and yeah. your thoughts about it Which I really liked because they were very common questions, but also a very lot of interesting common. ones yeah, um, so And then there's Part this... of what
1: I wanted to do with those questions was to normalize Those questions that you're not the only one that sits at the thanksgiving table and no one mentions your deceased husband this happens Across the board, people are afraid to bring up the dead because they're afraid they're going to upset you. They don't realize you're already thinking about that person.
0: Not to go into this whole other topic for a second, but I I remember reading about other cultures and even ancient European cultures. It was actually custom to bring up the dead. You were supposed to bring up the dead, like the Irish culture, for instance. It was in a way of honoring them, Multiple times a year and then the uh, how
1: lovely that's in mexico
0: in mexico dia de los muertes It's all about honoring the dead ones who have passed over And so and and I feel like it gives you that connection and I did I have noticed that where people don't want to Have conversations about people that have have died And it's like an avoidance
1: They're protecting you but they're actually protecting themselves
0: That's a good way of putting it that is a great summary um
1: I mean, it's, it's well-meaning, but it has a, a, a painful impact.
0: Yes, I agree. I, I agree with that completely.
1: The other day I, I met a friend for dinner and her mother had passed away uh, several months ago. I said, how are you doing without your mother? And she said, thank you so much for asking. Simple question. Because it expresses the willingness to listen to her loss. Most people don't want to hear it, or a lot of people don't. Because if you're not at peace with your own losses, other losses can be activating,
0: right? I, I love the way, you, the way you describe this because it's succinct and it's very true. Like You're right. If I'm not at peace with something, of course I'm going to avoid bringing up our dead grandfather or whatever I, you know, because I haven't dealt with it. And so therefore then you can't deal with it. It's like this cycle here. And how can we break that cycle of avoidance <laughs> connection? Right. Exactly.
1: No,
0: projection. Oh, projection. Right. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Right. So I, and I was, I was reading, uh, I want to, I want to ask you another question, but I, I wanted to read something. Uh, yeah. it was one of the quotes you put in your book. Well, actually, um, uh two quotes it was it's just interesting to me about grief it was almost like you said grief a companion to grief but it's almost like you refer to grief as a companion in the book um it said uh okay here we go the relationship with yourself you were talking about and as it turns out it's the best gift you can give those you love and those who love you how is this possible like having a having a relationship with yourself What does it mean to be kind to yourself, to take your own side, to befriend yourself? Think about how you would reach out and be with a friend who has just suffered a loss. You would probably show up and just be there with your friend and listen to her story of all that happened. You might bring over dinners, offer to shop, ask how you might help, show her all the compassion you can muster. Can you embrace your vulnerability, your irritability, your impatience, and even your resistance as deeply human responses to separation and loss? I thought that was just so perfect because it was so simple. It's like well what if what if your friend had lost somebody? How would you treat them? That's how we should treat ourselves.
1: Yes, but most of us would treat our friend better.
0: <laughs> that's what I'm hearing, yes, and that's what I'm seeing. I think most people do they they have uh, yeah we 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 honor our friend, but we beat ourselves up for every little thing, and that is probably exasperated with grief because you're already losing yes something, someone. Um, I wanted to make sure we covered something here. What about, you, we, we talked a little bit about before the interview, we talked about loss of, of pets. Can you t- talk to me about that a little bit? And there's some, and, and people's different opinions on that.
1: Um, what I hear a lot is that the loss of a pet is really different than the loss of a partner or a friend or a parent. And the grief people experience is very different. And sometimes it can generate a sense of shame. So one of the things that I hear is the loss of my pet was the most upsetting loss I've ever had. And I don't want to tell anybody that. I'm ashamed of that. And I say it's different because it's the love you have for a pet is pure, it's unconditional, and it's simple. The love we have for people is complicated and complex, because most of our relationships are complicated. They are mixed with a history that isn't all one thing or the other. So of course the grief is going to be different. And to talk about it being more or less is probably not smart, but to think of it is a very different grief. And it might last longer, but it's different than the loss of a person or a human relationship. And I think people are taken aback by that. Usually the grief is pure. There's not a lot of regret. There's not a lot of resentment. There's not a lot of looking back, woulda, coulda, shoulda, unless the animal had, for instance, a traumatic death, which Mm. can happen, you know, from negligence or something like that. But, you know, putting an animal down um, is the supreme act of kindness if the animal is suffering. So, it's, it's just simpler. It's not laden in the way often our grief is with the loss of people.
0: I'm really glad you talked about that because I think I was thinking about pets and pets I've had and a pet I currently have. And my wife and I were talking about the other night how she goes, how much better is your life with our, with our dog? And I said, probably like 60%, 70%, because our dog is like this little angel you know, we trained her a lot to make her that way, and, <laughs> <laughs> but she uh, she's just so sweet and attentive at all times. No matter what's going on with me, she wants to play. She wants to lick me. She wants to come over and ow at me and cuddle with me and sleep with me. No matter what kind of day I have, <laughs> your
1: wife loved you like yeah.
0: that, <laughs> right? Yeah, there was that old joke about locking you—you uh, you lock your uh, your wife in the trunk of a car, your husband in the trunk of a car, your partner in the trunk of a car for a couple hours. And, uh, versus locking your dog in the car for a couple hours. What happens when you open the trunk? The dog licks you and so happy to see you. What happens the other person? How dare you put me in here? You know, that's, that's the old joke. I can't remember the whole heard, way. The punchline. The punch They're like, oh yeah, we'll put your partner in there for a couple hours, see what happens. Um, you know, who's going to love you more? It's, that's the joke. But so, you know, the dog brings this light to your life. I, I love my, I call my dog sometimes, or like a little Buddha, because all she cares about is what's going on right now. Is the most important thing ever, and that's true. But we forget that because we're human, and we always want to live in the past. We want to live in the future. We're distracted, and what is happening right now is the most important thing ever. And dogs, I think, teach us that. And and cats. I, I had I had cats when I was a kid, but cats too. You know, they're just content to be there and to hang out. And uh,
1: you know, I got to tell you what I named yeah. my new dog. What I named my new new dog bodhi for bodhisattva
0: oh wow speaking uh, of buddha
1: well, i just thought you'd appreciate that
0: i do appreciate that but just for fun since we're going there my dog's name is shiva so if that tells you anything <laughs> yeah i know it's a play it's a my hindu friends have all forgiven me so far um but uh yeah so uh, you know that's it's 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 beautiful so that, that i love that name of people and i know about uh, bodhisattva. So. Um, pets are another huge thing. And I know um, we're kind of getting close to the end of your time limit. So I wanted to just invite you uh, for people that are out there that uh, some people are listening to this, they're practitioners, you know, they're clinicians, they're in grad school, they're learning stuff. Okay. That's great. There are other people that are going to be listening to this that just found out something terrible they're in the grieving process because of the algorithms they'll be able to search the word grief they'll find this podcast what would you say to those people out there that are grieving right now maybe with acute grief
1: um what i would say i would say um the first thing i would say is it won't always feel like this um right now if you've lost someone that you love recently probably the wallpaper the rug the ceiling and all the furniture looks the same grief everywhere Um, As time passes, generally the frequency, the intensity, and the duration of that kind of searing pain abates as you bring more resources into your life and time passes. But always there'll be probably a gray chair in the living room. That you visit in much the same way as if you break a bone, it's searing at first, then you have surgery, then you have PT, and on rainy days, that bone aches. So it won't go away, but it won't always feel the way it does, and it will become more tolerable with time if you, if you allow yourself to be with it.
0: Yes, absolutely. And we all need resources. So yeah. it's important to, as much as it hurts, reach into resources, people, um, different things, because just like if I broke my leg, I would probably go to the hospital and ask to get my bones set. If, you ha- if your heart is broken, you've got to seek something outside of your normal habits because it's not just going to heal with you know, distraction or alcohol or anything else that you can name that could substitute.
1: Now, bring in the resources that allow you to be with it, to allow it to, to to metabolize and move through you. Because it grief is a form of loving and we don't want to truncate our loving. So what we want to do is find ways to hold it and be with it. And hopefully that's what this book does.
0: And I think it does. And I'm excited that people can get your book. It's coming out very soon here. Um, opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Lost Peace. It's a very interactive book. And uh, you know, it's a it's a low cost offering. So, you know, you can get it from the library, I'm assuming at some point it'll be in libraries if you they library
1: journal loved it. So yes. it's the library. If you could get into your library.
0: Yeah, well, you can do the new thing where you you uh you actually give your request and then they put it in a bag and then you drive through. They do the drive-through thing once a week, yeah.
1: Oh, ah, that's great. I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, that well, at least that's what they're doing here at the, all the branches. You drive through, you pick it up, it's got a sack and you just flash your ID from the car window. So. Um yeah, yeah so we're adapting. Um I just wanted to thank you Claire for uh, coming on, the intentional clinician, and and sharing all your wisdom and your experience, and, and and all of the things you've learned from your from your work.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun talking to you, and I appreciate you having me come on.
0: there you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast with Paul Krauss. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe. I would surely appreciate it and or leave us a rating on iTunes. I very much enjoyed my talk with Claire. It was wonderful to have such an enlightening enlivening discussion with somebody who's been so close to the darkness and difficulties that all humans must go through in this lifetime. I believe that anybody going through grief, or even if you're just curious about the subject, would really appreciate her book. So I really encourage everyone to get it from their local library or buy it. Um, You can find out more on openingtogrief.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krause and his guest, and while these are based upon the literature they have read and their experience in the fields, they should not be viewed as a definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 right now or the National Suicide prevention line at 1-800-273-8255 that's 1-800-273-8255 are you a young person of color feeling down stressed out or overwhelmed text steve that's s-t-e-v-e to 741-741 that's steve text that word to 741-741 and a live train crisis counselor will respond if you are in need of counseling do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area if you, you can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area at Health for Life Grand Rapids and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids. You can do that by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. You can also find Health for Life information on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and even YouTube. The Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association is working to increase the availability of quality mental health services statewide, increasing education, promoting best practices, and working to keep licensed professional counselors and other professionals accessible by the public. If you are a therapist and a counselor and you are not a member of your local counseling organization, please get involved. The American Mental Health Counselors Association and the American Counseling Association both are lobbying to help bring counseling more into the mainstream and getting Especially the vulnerable populations and children, access to therapy, very important. Uh, emotional education in schools, among other things, other projects going on. So get involved. It uh, doesn't take much. Uh, if you're a professional, you can pretty much join any of these organizations for about $100 a year or less. If you are an EMDR therapist in training, I am now an Emdrea consultant, and I can provide you with 15 of the 20 hours needed to become Emdrea certified. I'm going to be starting an MDRIA consultation group, both online and in person. looks like Wednesdays. For details, check out CounselingSupervisorGR.com or HealthForLifeGR.com. Until next time on the Intentional Clinician Podcast, I am wishing you all a safe and peaceful week.